Thanks, Marielle. Well, good evening and welcome uh, to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Lachlan's. My name's Rowan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to say hi to you after church. Um, it'd be great to meet you and hear a bit of your story. Um, as a church, we keep working through books of the Bible because we are convinced that God speaks to us in His Word. Uh, so we'd love you to keep the Bible open. There'll be some verses on the screen, but why don't we pray now and ask that God would help us to hear what He has to say to us tonight. And that might change the way we think about ourselves and the world that we live in. Let's pray. Father, we come together tonight from all sorts of different places. And we recognize there's a myriad of things running through our minds. But we want to ask that tonight we would hear this word that Marielle has just read, that we have heard, that we would hear it as your word. We ask that you would show us what you see and that from it, Lord, you might change eternity for us, for those around us, and for your world. And pray, Lord, that my words will be your words this evening, that you would speak through me, and that together we might come away being changed through your Spirit and by your Word. Amen. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but for some of us, one of the most scariest experiences in life happens to us nearly every day. I don't know what scary experiences come to mind for you as you think about scary experiences of life, but my hunch is that all of us go through a similar type of routine each morning. We get up and at some point within the next hour or so, we look at ourselves in the mirror. Now for many of us, that's a scary experience. (laughs) To get up and see that person in the mirror and be like, whoa, do I really look like that? I don't know, have you ever had that experience where you kind of look in and you're like, man, you look old, or you're kind of like, man, you look like a kid, depending on, you know, what your face looks like and who you are. I've noticed that in our house, uh, looking in the mirror kind of has a different response. Uh, When Sarah looks in the mirror, she responds a different way than the way I do. Uh, Each day, I generally look in the mirror and I kind of think, great, you know, you're looking all right. You look in the mirror and you're like, this is fine. You've shaved. You're like, this is great. You've got clothes on. Like, praise God. They're the right way around. Like, that's a good thing. I think, yep, sweet. You know, here I am and out I go. I walk out of our kind of ensuite and I hear from the other side of the bedroom, oh, have you got any meetings today? I'm like, why? She's like, I wouldn't, wouldn't wear that. I'm like, what's wrong with what I'm wearing? And he's like, well, the stripes don't really go with checks. You can't have them together. I'm like, seriously? I just put clothes on. Or, or, or then you're like, um, have you done your hair today? I'm like, yes. Have you done yours? I don't know if you ever experienced these things. Yet when Sarah walks into the bathroom, and she has a totally different experience with the same mirror. It's like it kind of, I look at the mirror and I'm like, yep, everything's fine. She looks at it and she sees all these kind of different aspects. She then kind of goes, which earrings look better to you? These ones or the other ones? And I'm like, you're wearing earrings? What do you mean? And they're different? I don't know. It's like this mirror has a powerful effect on the life of Sarah that it just doesn't seem to have with me. Well, there are times in our life when all of us seem to have one of those powerful mirror moments, regardless of our gender. Have you ever heard the sound of your voice being played back to you? Don't you love it? Have you ever seen a picture of yourself from a different angle than the normal kind of selfie shot? And you're kind of like, whoa, do I look like that? Thank you. 
Have you ever read something that you've written a number of years ago and just kind of come back to it and gone, whoa, did I really think that then? How immature, how stupid, or man, I've gotten dumb. (laughs) Today, I I want you all to imagine that you had a mirror that enabled you to actually see beyond your flesh and into your heart. A mirror that could see your character, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act and the way you live. How would you feel if you had a mirror so powerful you could see to the, to the depth of your core what you were really like? What would you think about yourself? What would others think if they could see into that mirror? It does kind of depend on how you look at the mirror. For some of us, we have a, a cursory look and we walk outside and think the world is great when we're wearing mismatched clothes. But for others of us, we see the person in the mirror and we respond and see what it has to say to us and make changes. Today, I want to put it to you that the Word of God provides that mirror. It will provide a mirror into the life of David that will show him his very heart. And it's my hope today that it, as you and I get a window seat into the event around this king called David, that something profound will happen to us as well. That as we listen to these events, that the lights will turn on and we'll get that front row seat into the mirror of our own lives. And while we'll see that it is scary to start with, that God's word today as it acts as that mirror, actually gives us great hope. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been following the life of a man named David. The man God took from following around sheep in the fields to leading the nation Israel. A man who had previously trusted that God was good and that he kept his promises. A man who was described by his kindness and his justice. But the tragedy was, as with all the human race, this man, David, did not continue as he had begun. Did you ever do that? You start out with great aspirations. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it so well. And after not too long, we fall back into old habits. It didn't take long for David to start abusing his position and power. Rather than being the king to sacrificially lead God's people... He had sacrificed more than one of his own men for his own pleasure, committing adultery, then arranging a murder to cover it up. If only this were the stuff of movies. But unfortunately, that narrative is real in the events of the life of history. And unfortunately, that narrative is real in the lives here in this room, including myself. If not in practice, at least in our thought life. How many of us have done things with others in our minds that we shouldn't have? How many of us have wished others had not existed anymore for they had hurt us so much or they know things about us that they wish that we wish they never knew? In the thought lives of our minds, we do what David did. The only reason we get away with it is we don't have the same amount of power. David forgot that leadership... It's about serving those entrusted to you, not serving yourself with the people who trust you. It's a helpful little memory for us. Leadership is not about serving, leadership is about serving those entrusted to you, not serving yourself with the people who have trusted you. 
But even greater than that, David forgot who he was ultimately accountable to. He deluded himself into thinking that he had done nothing wrong before others and before God. And again, we, like every other human on the face of the planet, do exactly the same thing. We think we're not too bad. We haven't committed any gross atrocities. We justify and explain away so much. However, the last verse of chapter 11 acts like a piercing light in the dark night, although David has not yet seen it. The last verse in chapter 11, God speaks his word and gives his verdict on the situation. 2 Samuel 11 verse 27. The Lord considered what David had done to be evil. The Lord considered what David had done to be evil. What David thought was a reasonable course of action, the narrator tells us that God thought differently. And here we begin to see David's biggest issue. His biggest issue here wasn't merely the adultery or the murder. All those things are are very wrong. They're not right and not condoned by God's word at all. But David's biggest issue was what he had done with the word of God. In fact, over the last three chapters, God's voice has been strangely silent. I don't know if you'd noticed that. God isn't mentioned once. And not because he's somehow walked away from David, but because David turned his back on God and his word. The very last thing that God had said was in chapter 8, verse 14. And it says this, 8, verse 14, The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. At that moment, David and God were great. God was with David. David was following God. But since that point, David has forgotten the Lord. And what, the, what was the result of forgetting the Lord? Evil. That might seem strong to you. But this is David's biggest issue. That he rejected the word of God. Life lived apart from the God who made you. Without reference to the one who sustains us. No matter how good it might seem to us, is evil in God's sight. Not only does it lead to horrible atrocities, but it boldly declares that we don't need God. I don't need God in my life. Silence toward God. The sidelining of the word of God is not merely an ambivalence towards him. It is evil. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what your take is on God and his word, whether you think he exists or not. But God's word to you and to me is that to ignore him or to live apart from his word is the very definition of evil. What role does the word of God play in your life? Is he a regular conversation partner? Are you seeking his guidance in the word, in the scriptures? Are you prayerfully dependent on him in the details as much as the big picture? Or is the God who made you and sustains your every breath strangely absent from your life. I want to show you why that is evil. Imagine for a moment that you're a citizen of New Zealand. Not too hard for many of us here. Okay, we live in this country as a citizen of this country. Um, But we live in the country uh, that has good laws that are in existence for us. The country has these laws here so that we might live as, as people and enjoy the land of New Zealand. But imagine for a moment you decide to ignore the laws of the country, the way of life set up that we might enjoy this great nation, and that you instead decide to live as a law unto yourself here. Well, that is evil. 
It's in rebellion against the law that exists. Not only will you do evil and do wrong, but to reject the good and governing authority of the land that you live in and set yourself over them, well, it's evil in and of itself. It's like setting up your own little state. Sure, you can do it here in New Zealand. But when you do it against God, then you have made an enemy of the one who made you. To reject the good and governing God, the one who sustains your life, who determines what good is, is evil. And so in removing himself from God and his word, David did evil in God's sight. But then we hear the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's how the chapter starts. And what we see is that sometimes in life, rather than leaving us to the consequences of our own stupid decision, God intervenes. And He does it with words. If you're someone that's come along today because someone invited you, or if you're even just here today, then God is speaking into your life. As we read these scriptures, God is speaking to us. As we understand it, as fulfilled in His Son, Jesus. But here's the thing. God doesn't always speak to us in the time that we expect or in the way that we expect. And so at this moment here, 2 Samuel 12 verse 1, God sent Nathan to David. If you look back over the last chapter of 2 Samuel, in chapter 11, we saw there was a lot of sending going on. We see that David began by sending messengers to find out about Bathsheba, who she was and whether she was married or not. He sent the messengers along. Then, then he found out who, who she was and he sent messengers to bring her to him. And then David sent again people when he'd, he'd done the deed to go and get Uriah, this woman's husband, from the front lines of war and bring them back. And he came back. Then David sent Uriah to be with his wife, but he didn't go. And then after trying to get him to cover up what David had done, he sent Uriah back to the front lines with his own death warrant in his hands. There's all sorts of sending happening throughout this chapter or the chapter before. But now the most significant sending we see, the sending that would change the face of the earth, is God sending his word to David. And it comes through a man by the name of Nathan. We met Nathan in chapter 7. He was the prophet, the, the, the spokesperson for God, who told David of God's great promise. A promise to turn one of David's sons into the king who would rule forever. The last time that Nathan had spoke, it had been to convey the blessing of God. But this time, it would convey the blessing of God, but in a very different way. And here we see the life-changing word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. 
You kind of hear this story. We know what's going on, but David doesn't know at this moment. When this traveler came, the rich man couldn't bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle. He couldn't bear the sacrifice, the cost. And so instead, he went to his neighbor, to his, to his neighbor down the road who had this little baby lamb that was there and that had grown up amongst them, and he killed it. That's what preparing it for his guests means. David hears this story, and it makes him mad, so angry. It kind of sets off all the triggers, and he's, he's in a rage, right? And it makes me think, have you ever had that sort of situation where something just flicked the switch in your head and made you so much more angry about something. For me, I remember a situation. I was, I was 16. I was with my mum and, and my dad. We were about to catch a train into the city and we're walking up the, the platform, uh, sorry, the stairs onto the platform. And as we looked out, there was this guy down below who was kicking his girlfriend. And I'm like, what are you doing? And before I even thought, I just, this, this thing switched. I was infuriated. I'm like, what are you doing? So I yelled at the top of my voice, get off her! I'm like, well, then I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> now, I'm so thankful my dad is six foot four. He's kind of much taller behind me. Uh, but the guy kind of then walked off and the girl kind of followed. All sorts of issues going on there. But there was something that went on inside me that just made me so angry. Have you ever felt that? For the first time in a while, something goes off inside of David. There's something right about it. For the first time in a number of chapters, David calls on his heavenly father he calls to his father look what he says in verse 5 david was infuriated with the man and said to nathan as the lord lives the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity he must pay four lambs for that lamb suddenly david calls on the name of the lord As surely as the Lord lives, something has flicked inside as God's word has spoken. David does not yet know what it's about and what it will be. He's looking in this kind of foggy mirror at the moment and angry about what he sees. And he reacts. The thing is, as despicable as this rich man's conduct was, stealing a lamb from someone and killing it was not a capital offense. It was not something that you should be put to death for. In Exodus 22, the law tells us that it did require someone, if they did that, to pay back four times what they had taken. But it was not death. And it makes you wonder, what's going on for David here? Why has he reacted so strongly at this point? Was he perhaps overcompensating for his accusing conscience by lashing out at the wickedness of another? This is not what justice had called for. This is what his anger had called for. But the bigger problem, of course, was the hypocrisy of David's judgment. (laughs) Do you ever find yourself getting really angry at people who do things that you do as well? (laughs) Let me me show you what I mean. The other day, yesterday this was, I was in the car. I had the boys, were coming back from uh, Cornwall Park with some friends, coming back from the park. And there was a guy in a BMW next to me. I'm like, yeah, BMW, right? Whatever. Cool. Anyway, so I'm there and I look and as he's kind of driving this BMW, he's holding his phone in front of the steering wheel, plugged in with a cord. I'm like, you idiot. Who would do that, right? And I just found myself suddenly getting really angry at this guy going, who would do that? I'm like, you know what I want to do? I want to speed up, go in front of him, then brake really hard and he'll smash into the back of us. And I'm like, ha, told you, you shouldn't have looked at your phone. And I thought, you know what I need to do? I need to take a photo of him doing it. 
But then I just realized the reason I'm so angry is because, well, it's something that I do all the time. And it's something that I'm trying not to do. And then when I see him doing it, I'm like, why can he do it? And I, I can't. It just annoys me. And so we respond. Do you ever find that? That you get angry at people who do the same things wrong as you, as if you want to judge them instead of yourself. I'll tell you what it is. It's hypocrisy. And that's exactly what happened to me yesterday. I'm like, why am I so angry at this guy? I know I didn't drive in front of him and break and smash the cars. But I, it just kind of hit me. It's because, Rowan, you want to do it, but you can't. And you do it, and you just want to blame this guy and show how wrong he is. You think you are so right. Hypocrisy drives us to all sorts of delusion. The hypocrisy here was that the judge himself was the criminal. He was the one that deserved death for what he had done against God, against Uriah, against Bathsheba. The story was not a report on someone else's crime, but a mirror reflecting God's furious verdict on David's own wickedness. It was a bright light shone into his life where God pulled back to expose his heart, to expose his character. Who was this man that would do such a thing? Nathan replied in chapter 12, verse 7, You are the man. You are the man. At that moment, David's facade came crashing down. The game of pretend that he'd been playing with himself, with his family and friends, with God, came crashing to a halt. That's what God's word does, friends. The word of God reaches out and halts our own distorted view of life and lets us see things from God's point of view, lets us see things as they really are. And at this moment, God reached out to David and said, it is you, David. It is you. Then listen to what God says, verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would have given you even more. Everything you have, David, everything, I've given it to you. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? What more could he have possibly wanted? Who else could possibly have given him more than God? Who else could possibly create a better world than the one that God's word outlines? David had lost the plot because he'd forgotten God. He had rejected God's word to him. Friends, these are words that we need to hear. For they find their fulfillment not only in the life of David, but in in you and me. No matter what you think of God, no matter where you've come from, everything you have, God has given you. Whether you love Him or not, it all comes from Him. Your, Your life, your job, your skills, your pleasure, your joy, your money, your resources, your family, your relationships, all of it has been given from from Him. I gave it to you. I'm I gave you your very breath. I made your heart beat. I sustained your life. 
I've been doing this from the day you were born up until this very day. And if we look further down the line at what God has done for us, at the solution to David's problem that is found in Jesus, then he's given us forgiveness. He's given us even more than David. Jesus' death in our place, the hope of eternal life, the promise that when Jesus comes back, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. We get to be called God's children. We get to be part of God's kingdom that does not perish or spoil or fade. Everything you have has come from God. Yet so often we despise the word of God by doing what he considers evil. So often we reject him. We ignore him. It's so easy to sit and shake our heads at David and think, you fool, you idiot, look at what God had done. But at that moment, we don't look into the mirror of God's word to our life. We miss that we do exactly the same thing. That deep down, you and I are no different. We just don't have the power to get away with it like David did. How do we despise God's word? What are the ways that we can do that today? David just ignored it. He ignored the commands God had given him. But today we do that in in different ways. A number of us, we like to explain the word of God away. We have all sorts of fancy arguments about authorship or cultural expression. And and we kind of go, yeah, yeah, we, we believe in this, but it's kind of... You've got to understand it a little bit more in a nuanced type of way and we step back from the Word of God and we kind of explain away its power. Or for others of us, we just kind of turn the volume down on the Word of God. Look, I know what it says, but you can't leave everything by that. You can't really be so fundamental that you believe that God spoke through the Bible totally, can you? For others of us, we, we become ambivalent towards it and we despise God's Word. We just, we're not angry at God. We just, you know, it just doesn't really mean much for us. For others of us, we theorize it. We turn it into an academic pursuit. We say, this is what God's word says, and we can articulate all the doctrines of scripture, but we hold them at arm's length. We never let them impact our hearts. We can explain it all, but it never changes a step we make. Others of us just outright reject what it says. We think there is no evidence for Jesus and his existence. We choose to push aside the evidence that exists and just move on with our own life, with our own little state and rebellion against God. Or I think the one that is most strong that I feel is that we fool ourselves into culture's view of the world rather than God's. We so lap up what the world around us says about what's important and what matters and the way we should think about the relationships between men and women and the, the way we can treat our bodies and the way that we can have position and rights. And we just sap up from the world around us out of good motives. And we, we slowly render the word of God useless. We, we, render, we render it impotent because we, we more align ourselves with the culture of the world around us than the word of God who is speaking to us like a powerful mirror, pulling back our flesh and showing us our hearts. How do you despise God's word? Well, a sober reminder for all of us is that there are significant consequences for rejecting this God. It's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. 
there are consequences for our actions. Listen to what God says to David in verse 10. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Friends, there are consequences for rejecting the God who gives life. Please hear them today. Remember those words that God had given in chapter 8, chapter 7 to David, that, that, that David would not build God a house, but that God would build David a dynasty, a house that would last forever. That a house was not just four walls and a roof, but a dynasty to come. God's promise to David was that he would do that, that his descendant would rule his kingdom forever. But the question for us now is, is it possible that David has forfeited the promise of God? Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house, your dynasty. His family from this point forward will be marred by all sorts of wrong and terror. David's very own family will be ripped apart for all to see and by people who are his own family. What David did in secret, God would punish in the open. He would bring out to light the evil nature of David's despising God's word. Just like God's kingdom was taken away from Saul and given to a neighbor, David's family would be taken away from him. And in fact, we'd find out it was actually by his own son. Absalom was the one who slept with his wives and did that in front of all of Israel. We'll see the way that this family turns out, the tragic turn in world history of the family that looks so good that God had promised to bring blessing through the son of David. The question is, will it continue? The lesson we learn here in the story of David is that despising the word of the Lord is no small thing. It wreaks disaster on life itself. It's not some mystic story about some curse that's placed on a family. It's the reality of rejecting the God who made you and loves you. Please hear the warning of David today. All of us, myself included. Please let the word of God alert us to the real consequences of turning our back on God's word, of despising what he has said to us. We so often stand on this joy of forgiveness and think that there will be no consequences. But friends, the world around us is riddled with consequences of our own rebellion. Imagine if we actually did what God had said. If we live the way he made us to live, this world would be so much better, would it not? But our world is full of the consequences of our rebellion against him. Do not despise the word of the Lord. But the other thing that we must make sure we do not miss tonight is the amazing character of this God. It's the amazing character of this God. After being confronted with the 
world-shattering word of God. David responds, and have a look with me at his response. Verse 13. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then quick as a flash, Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. The God who gives us his word, who gives us life himself, who shows us the depths of our rebellion against him, is the God who's also so eager to forgive. Have you ever met anyone like this? He does not delight in the death of a sinner. He does not give David the full force of what he deserves. He is a God who is eager to take away our sins and to forgive us and restore the relationship with him. What a God. But do notice what it took to bring David back from his rebellion. So often we think, yeah, yeah, we just need to come back to God. You know, uh, but David's conscience didn't bring him back. It's not like David was cruising along. He's like, you know what? Deep down, I feel like I really need to repent to come back to God. It wasn't time that brought him back either. It wasn't like, oh, just as time went by, yep, he went, you know what? I really need to come back to God. Reason didn't get in there. He didn't kind of think, you know what? I've really done some bad stuff in my life. I need to come back to God and, and apologize. The only reason that he was able to repent and confess his sin was the life giving and world shattering word of God. If God did not speak through Nathan, whom God sent to him and tell him that story and point out that he was the one that had done this, David would have continued in his life in rejection of God, straight to his death and judgment and hell. How great is the word of God? Oh, it hurts. When we look in that mirror and we see what we are like and how we have despised the word of God, it hurts. It hurts to say that I can't do it on my own. It hurts to say that I need God's help. But how great it is that God reaches out to us by his word and shows us who we are and then shows us who he is and what he has done. That he has offered us forgiveness. He is so loving and generous that despite our rejection of him, he speaks his word into our lives like a mirror. Do you see how powerful God's word is? How generous he is by speaking it? Well, in verse 16, David then pleads with God that the consequences of his actions, now that he's confessed his sin and that God has taken away his sin, he asks that the consequences of his action not be poured out on this child that he fathered with Uriah's wife. But David's earnest prayers to God don't avert God's right judgment on David. David still has to suffer the consequences for what he's done. But seven days after the child is born, he dies. And at this point, the staggering consequences of David's sin grip us all, don't they? This child dies because David sinned. Our sin has phenomenal consequences. But we need to see that despite the ugliness of David's sin and the horror of its consequences, God did not abandon his love for David. God did not abandon his plan for his people. Have a look at verse 24 of 2 Samuel 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and she went and, sl- and he went and slept with her. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. 
the Lord loved him and sent a message through Nathan the prophet who named him Jedidiah, which means the beloved of God, because of the Lord. At the end of this story, I'm amazed. David's been such a tool, such a jerk, such an idiot. He's rejected God. There's been phenomenal consequences. A child died because of his own stupidity. And yet God still chooses to keep his promises to David. He still chooses to give him a son through Bathsheba. (laughs) And he says that his love will be on this child. Suddenly hope is restored. This, This promise that God had given David, he has not forgotten. God will not let mankind overthrow his promises. He will not. And while David lost a son that day because of his evil actions, God would provide another son, Solomon, the beloved of the Lord. And through Solomon, God would send his own son who would experience death for everyone. Not only did this son die, but he took on the penalty that we all deserved. His name was Jesus. And at the moment he made his entry onto the world stage, what, what noise was heard from heaven? What was God's word that was said? Luke three twenty two. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Despite David's sin, God poured out his love on David and us by sending through Solomon the beloved son, Jesus, who would die in our place and suffer death, judgment, and separation from God's goodness on the cross. If only we would come to him. If only we would respond to the life-giving word of God that has been shown to us today and in the 